You are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. As I'm sure most of you know, it is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And I'm sure most of you are very aware of breast cancer. But maybe you're less aware of all the risk factors and how to best be proactive about your breast health. So I was very excited when this week's guest, Dr. Amy Commander, reached out to me offering herself as a guest. Amy is an avid listener of the show, and she shared with me that she often recommends the podcast and Next Level, the book I co-wrote with Dr. Stacey Sims, to her patients. And she's a marathon herself, and she plans to run her 10th Boston Marathon this year to support the Ellie Fund, which is a nonprofit that provides essential support services for breast cancer patients to ease their stresses of everyday life. She also has an enormously impressive resume. Amy is a breast oncologist at the Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center. She is the Director of Breast Oncology and Cancer Survivorship at the Mass General Cancer Center in Waltham and Newton Wellesley Hospital. And she is the medical director of the Mass General Cancer Center in Waltham and an instructor in medicine at Harvard Medical School. As if that weren't enough, she recently became the director of lifestyle medicine at the Mass General Cancer Center. She is also incredibly delightful. I really enjoyed this conversation with her where we dive in on breast health, breast cancer risk, and much more. She shared some resources like risk calculators and recent research that I will put in the show notes for you with clickable links so you can check those out. Importantly, when talking about risk and prevention, it's really important to remember, and we talk about this in the show, that you're never really to blame if you get a cancer diagnosis. There is no shame in a cancer diagnosis. Yes, there are things you can do to reduce your risk. But cancer happens to women who, quote, unquote, do everything right and have no family risk to speak of. And it just happens. So I really wanted to say that because I think sometimes we carry this odd shame about this disease and there really should not be some. I also wanted to say we began by talking about Katie Couric's column last month, where she talks about being diagnosed with breast cancer this past summer. I'll put a clickable link to that column in the show notes as well, because it's an extremely well-written piece. And it should be talk about how important it is, like Katie Couric talks about, to be proactive about your breast health. And this is where I get honest and vulnerable. And maybe, like now, start choking up. <laughs> um, having Amy on gave me a lot of apprehension, if I'm going to be honest, because I am very overdue for a mammogram myself, like years overdue. I've had a couple, but somewhere along the line, I just got scared (laughs) and I stopped. And I know that's stupid. And I know that's irrational. And I know all the things you're thinking. So please don't send me messages um, telling me those things because I know. And um, it makes me feel shame. And the worst thing, wow, I'm sorry. I'm so emotional sometimes. The worst thing to do with someone who is feeling shame is to shame them further. And this is like such an overreaction. And I'm just going to roll with this. I could re-record this, but I'm not going to. But it makes me feel really ashamed because like I'm always telling people. I'm getting there. Because I'm always telling people how to live their best lives, right? And how to be healthy. And um, we don't always take our advice. And it just, it's it's been bugging me literally for years. So after I hit stop recording, I confessed all this to Amy. 
and she was really wonderful. And she shared her own fears surrounding her screenings as someone who treats this disease for a living. And she gave me her cell phone and she offered to text me support. And she basically just told me to do the hard thing and to make the appointment. And so I did. And it's in a few weeks. And while I'm obviously still kind of mental about this, I will share with you that I have felt a real sense of relief wash over me for finally have just making the damn appointment. And really the only reason that I'm sitting here and like suddenly crying and and just being brave and putting this out there is because I know I'm not alone. Like I know that this is hitting some other ears and I'm 100% certain there are other women out there who are like, yep, they're nodding along. They too are afraid. And well, if you need someone to just tell you to just do the hard thing and get the screening, I'm happy to be that woman because I get it. So let's do the hard thing together. <sighs> okay. Uh, I, would, I would apologize, but what's the point? <laughs> anyway, before we get to it, if you haven't heard yet, let's let's turn the corner here. Some really cool news. On December 3rd, we are having our first ever Hit Play, Not Pause virtual summit. And I am super duper excited about this one. We have an amazing lineup, including sessions on hormones and menopausal therapy, intuitive eating for active women, injury prevention during menopause, especially for active women when our musculoskeletal tissues change, and pelvic and vaginal health. And, and it's only 20 bucks. Plus, the first 100 registrants get $10 off with the code HITPLAY, all caps, one word, at checkout. Again, 20 bucks. That is a steal. So there's really no excuse to not just head on over to feistymenopause.com right now and get a ticket. And I will put a link to that in the show notes. As always, I invite you to follow us at Feisty Menopause at Instagram and Facebook. Sign up for my weekly blog at feistymenopause.com and share the show with your friends and on your social media channels. It helps us to grow. Quick thanks to Inside Tracker for their continued support and for helping me get my cortisol and blood sugar into a better place. All right, boy, enough of me. Let's have a few words about our awesome sponsors and get on with the show. All right, Amy, I am so psyched that you reached out to me to have a show on this topic because um, it's super important and we haven't, you know, I'm a hundred episodes or so in and haven't talked about breast health yet. So thank you so much. I'm really excited to join you. I really love your podcast. Thank you so much. Let's, you know, let's actually just talk breasts first. Like I wanted to just like lay the foundation. Like what are our breasts made of? I mean, I know there's fatty tissue and glands and all that. But like, what are they made of? Is the general composition the same, no matter what size they are? You know, and we're hearing, you know, Katie Couric had come out that she has breast cancer and she had talked about dense breasts. I have dense breasts. Like, what is that? Like, talk to us about breasts, like and all like what they're made of and what all that really means. I'm happy to address that question. This is what I do all day as a breast oncologist. I talk to women about their breasts. I talk to women who are at high risk for breast cancer what steps they can take to lower that risk. And of course, primarily what I do is care for women who have a diagnosis of breast cancer. So I think it's really timely that Katie Couric came out with that announcement, um, really sharing her story quite honestly about what she went through in terms of her own diagnosis of breast cancer. And I really encourage your listeners to read her post. I'm just really impressed how much she shared to bring awareness to this important issue. And she does touch on, well, first she mentions she realizes she was delayed in terms of getting her mammogram, which we can talk about in many Women are, unfortunately, given the challenges we faced over the past two and a half years with COVID. But she also does state that she was noted to have dense breast tissue and sort of the implications of that. So your initial question is, what are breasts made of? And you actually answered it. Like there's fibroglandular tissue and fat. That's really what our breasts are made of. 
And the fibroglandular tissue component really refers to the parts of our breast that include the ducts and the lobules, the um, parts of our breast that are important for what the breast does in terms of making milk, et cetera. And so the ratio of how much fibroglandular tissue there is to fat tissue is really what determines the density of our breast tissue. And I will say that there's many factors that influence how dense a woman's breast tissue may be. Dense breast tissue is actually quite common, especially in younger women. So it's really not uncommon for a woman to have dense breast tissue. And it's important for her to be aware of this, but also her other risk factors for breast cancer, which we will discuss, which all come together to influence how we counsel our patients and make screening recommendations. Do we know why? I mean, is it just a a screening issue that seems to be an elevated risk or is there something inherent in the tissue that makes dense breasts an elevated risk? So we know that dense breast tissue in of itself does make it more difficult for a breast radiologist to read and interpret a mammogram. But in addition, breast density does appear to be its own independent risk factor for breast cancer. And the science of why that is true, why it is an independent risk factor, I think is still being you know, investigated further. There are so many factors we look at, as you know, hormonal factors, a woman's body weight, a woman's age, other genetic factors, which is a very interesting area of research. So I don't think we know exactly why it is an independent risk factor, but certainly it is incorporated into some of our risk prediction models when we counsel our patients. Gotcha. How does breast tissue change over time, especially, you know, for our audience as we go through the menopause transition? You know, some women report almost puberty-like changes, like their breasts get bigger, you know, they're more sore, like what is going on there? Right. Well, we all know our bodies go through many changes through menopause, and that's a major focus of the education you provide in terms of body composition and fat distribution, et cetera. So it is known that younger women tend to have more dense breast tissue, more of that fibroglandular component to fat ratio. And I guess you could say as we get older, that you know, fat component is more prominent. So that is one change that we do see in breast tissue, um, perhaps after menopause. Gotcha. Before we go on to more about breast cancer and the risk and, and prevention, I'd like just as active women about keeping our breasts healthy. When I was young, you know, you heard some almost urban legendy things about, you know, running and breast cancer and bouncing breasts, and maybe that was damaging your breasts. Like there was all yeah, sort of whisper down the alley thing. Like, what do active women have to know about, like, as far as protecting their breast in that way, you know, if they are running and being active? Well, first of all, I love that you're asking about running and being active, which, you know, <laughs> physical activity is so important to me as well. And I think the most important message is that being active actually has been shown in numerous studies to help reduce risk of breast cancer. So I encourage everyone to keep up with your amazing physical activity in terms of, you know, bouncing and other types of things that you're referring to. I think we all feel much better when we're wearing a good sports bra, but I don't think there's any data to suggest that that type of, um, you know, bouncing or trauma from, you know, running, et cetera, could increase risk of, you know, any adverse outcome in the future. So keep up the physical activity is my message and get a good sports bra. <laughs> Just because it's comfortable. Exactly. <laughs> um, let's talk breast health. I mean, it is the show will come out at Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And I am 100% certain that the women in my audience are aware, if not outright terrified about breast cancer. You know, it's on people's minds a lot. Uh, what should women know about the disease? You know, you mentioned risk profile a couple of times. What, is the, what does that mean? Right. So I think this is a great topic. That's why I'm glad we're focusing on this for Breast Cancer Awareness Month, which is really an opportunity for all of us to be educated about risk factors, screening, what we can do to lower our risk, and how we can best support our friends and family members who do have a diagnosis of breast cancer, because it is so common, as you note. So I think it's good to just start with some basic statistics, like why is this important? So we know in the United States, all women have a one in eight lifetime risk for development of breast cancer. So that's just why this is an important thing for all of us to be aware of. 
breast cancer is the most commonly diagnosed cancer in women in the United States. And um, however, I should state that lung cancer is the most common cause of death from cancer in women. So breast cancer is not um, the leading cause of death, thankfully, from cancer. Um, I think it's also really important for women to understand when we think about risk factors, there are the non-modifiable risk factors. Those are things we're born with, you know, you know, we are a woman, what is our family history? And then sort of other factors that transpire over the course of our lives, age of menarche, whether we pursue pregnancy, and if so, what age, whether or not we choose to take supplemental hormonal therapy, you know, how active we are, et cetera. Those are all in the sort of non-modifiable risk factor area. Well, actually, I guess hormonal therapy is more modifiable. Modifiable refers to the things we can change. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we talked earlier briefly about physical activity. Um, Modifiable also refers to other lifestyle factors, how much alcohol we drink, how sedentary we may be, you know, other types of factors that we can sort of control. So those are the key components to think about in terms of non-modifiable and modifiable risk factors. But I think all women also a key point is really to also know family history. And I I know it's interesting in many of the patients I see who have breast cancer, many women actually don't have a great handle on family history. So I think it's good to know that, you know, just when you're seeing your primary care doctor or gynecologist, you know, certainly in your 20s and 30s, what is my family history on both the maternal and paternal side? And not just for breast cancer, any kind of cancer, ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer, prostate cancer in men, all of these are important factors for a woman to be aware of. So how do those elements, and I mean, maybe the easiest thing is to ask is, is there a risk calculator that we can put in the show notes that people can, instead of going one by one and being like, okay, age of menarche, you know, I mean, I I don't necessarily want to do that here, but but if there's a tool that we can share, I would like to share that. Right. So as an academic, I can tell you there's many tools and they all have their <laughs> pros and cons and we can go into that in great detail. But let's start with simple. If someone wants to kind of use one of these risk calculators and sort of have a general idea mm-hmm. and perhaps discuss this with her doctor, there is the National Cancer Institute GAIL model, G-A-I-L. And this is on the National Cancer Institute website. And it is a very basic model where a woman would plug in some very basic information. Age, age of menarche. Has she ever had a breast biopsy? Has she ever been pregnant? And if so, what age? Any first degree relatives with breast cancer? So that's those are really the components. And the model will generate two scores, a predicted five-year risk for development of breast cancer and a predicted lifetime risk for development of breast cancer compared to sort of an average woman, whatever that means. So there are definitely some criticisms of this model. Certainly one of the aspects would be that the family history that it generates is really limited to first degree relatives. In addition, this model was, you know, sort of developed in a white Caucasian population. So you could argue, is this model um, relevant to all, you know, populations in this country? So there's certainly lots of work being done to enhance our risk prediction models. A lot of this is also being done by some of my colleagues at MGH using cool things like artificial intelligence. But at present, if your listeners wanted to go online and look at a basic model that is evidence-based, that would be a great place to start. Do they take any of those modifiable lifestyle? Great question. So, you know, some of the other models that are being used, um, which also help us estimate risk of having a genetic mutation, et cetera. You know, some of them are now incorporating body mass index, et cetera, but you're absolutely right. It's a great point. A model such as the Gale model does not take into account those factors. So I think we have room to improve these models in many ways. And let's talk about some of those modifiable risk um, factors. You know, you mentioned hormone therapy and that I don't have to tell you has gone, you know, we've, we've seen great changes and swings in thought and the research is still evolving from the women's health initiative to where we are now. Um, and the statements that, you know, the North American menopause society has been making in light of these changes. What are your thoughts on hormone therapy? Right. Well, first of all, I've listened to many of your podcasts with great experts who have explained this much better than I can. You know, remember the majority of patients I see are women who have a diagnosis of breast cancer. And I'm sure we'll get into this when we think about breast cancer, 
breast cancer is not one disease. There's many subtypes, but a significant proportion of breast cancers are actually driven by estrogen and progesterone. So in my patient population, often I am having to counsel my patients about coming off these medications. However, in a healthy woman who does not have cancer, I would encourage that individual to discuss with her gynecologist or primary care her own personal health history in terms of cardiovascular disease, you know, risk for breast cancer, et cetera. And then she can make an informed decision about whether or not she wishes to um, take hormonal therapy, which I know you've talked about so much in other episodes. So I feel like I'm coming at it from a slightly different lens because I'm treating breast cancer, but it is a great question. And you do cover it beautifully on your show with your other you know, experts. Okay. Thank you. I, we'll, we'll leave that there because we, we have covered it many, many times. Um, Talk to me about some of those other, you know, you mentioned alcohol, you mentioned exercise, uh, you mentioned uh, sedentariness, like tell me about some of these. So the American Cancer Society really has outlined very clear guidelines um, when it comes to lifestyle factors and risk for breast cancer and other cancers and Mm -hmm. what we can do to help reduce risk. And I like to make it as simple as possible when I'm explaining this, certainly on a podcast or in an interview or to my own patients. So we'll start with my favorite. I think it's your favorite too, um, physical activity. So we know that exercise is so important for cancer risk reduction, actually not just for breast cancer, but for other cancers as well. So it's so important to be active for so many reasons. Um, What are the standard recommendations for physical activity you know, I'm sure many of your listeners are much more active than what we recommend by the CDC, which is really at least 150 minutes of moderate aerobic activity each week and getting in strength training at least twice a week. So that's really the basic recommendation. But certainly, I hate to say this, the majority of Americans do not even meet that recommendation. So We're aware. <laughs> I know. So I'm kind of preaching to a crowd that's already yeah. embraced this, but physical activity is so important. And what also goes with that is limiting sedentary behavior. So um, there are a number of studies that come out have come out since, I hate to say it, you know, 2020, just demonstrating that when Americans were working from home more and really not going out and about, you know, our rates of sedentary behavior have gone up dramatically, which unfortunately is associated with numerous medical Um, conditions, including an increased risk for cancer. So again, being active is so important. And even if you are active, like you and I, Celine, we're doing this podcast now, but we are sitting, you know, know. I think about it a lot. During the course of our day, it's really important to find ways to incorporate activity, even if you're at a computer and you kind of did your run this morning or bike ride or whatever, because you know, it's just really important for us to move throughout the day. And, um, you know, some strategies, standing desk, getting up between meetings, doing some stretching, some yoga, you know, whatever it takes to kind of increase physical activity throughout our day is so important. Again, limiting sedentary behavior. Um, Healthy body weight. I know this is a challenging one and another topic you've covered a lot, particularly for postmenopausal women. Um, Being overweight or obese, unfortunately, is a risk factor for breast cancer. And certainly, you know, there are multiple explanations or hypotheses for why this is the case, but we should all do our best to kind of stay at a healthy body weight, which I know is a challenge, but something um, I talk to my patients about. And then finally, limiting alcohol. So um, I think this message really does need to be conveyed. Alcohol is a carcinogen. So um, some organizations would say to completely eliminate alcohol. The American Institute of Cancer Research which is a great organization which provides evidence-based information about the role of diet, physical activity, and other factors in cancer risk really does come down pretty hard on no alcohol. I will say that when I'm talking to my own patients, I recognize, you know, it is a balance. And so, you know, from studies that we have done, you know, I think it's reasonable perhaps to consider eight, maybe up to three to four drinks a week, not a day, a week. So um, sometimes, you know, we sometimes have celebrations and we need to, um, you know, celebrate, but like in general, limiting alcohol is an important one. And that's another factor that definitely, you know, use of alcohol has increased dramatically during the course of this COVID pandemic. So I think those are the key ones. In addition, smoking cessation, smoking is a risk factor for lung cancer, but is also a risk factor for breast cancer and other types of malignancy. 
As a lifelong runner and cyclist, I am stoked to announce that Tifosi Optics has come on as a podcast sponsor. The beauty of Tifosi sports glasses is that they hit all the marks. They are shatterproof polycarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance and complete eye protection. They stay put. They have little hydrophilic rubber nose pads that actually get more grippy the more you sweat, so they stay secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in sauna-like conditions. No matter what sport you do, they have a shade for your activity, including tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, and just hanging out at the beach. And they are super reasonably well-priced, which is very hard to find in a sea of overpriced eyewear. And they just look freaking rad. So head on over to tifosioptics.com and use the code FM, capital F, and capital M, like Feisty Menopause, number 20, FM20, to get 20% off your order today. I'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Good sleep. The one thing that sets you up for a great workout and a good day is quality sleep. We talk about it all the time here on the show, which is why I'm stoked to have Lagoon Sleep as a new sponsor. Because one of the most overlooked tools in a great sleep toolbox is the thing you literally rest your head on eight hours a night, your pillow. A quality pillow is everything. Otherwise, you end up tossing, turning, punching, and folding your pillow, waking up with neck pain, and all the stuff that happens when your pillow doesn't meet your personal comfort needs. Say hello to the most comfortable sleep you've ever had with Lagoon. They start you out with a two-minute personalized pillow quiz and then pair you with your perfect pillow. I got the Otter, a cooling adjustable pillow that is perfect for side sleepers who run warm at night like I do. It is a dream. It's fully adjustable, so I was able to get the perfect loft and support, and the cooling feature is everything. As someone who turned into a furnace every evening before menopause, I appreciate that the Otter is stuffed, with shredded gel-infused memory foam, which instead of trapping heat from my neck and head, draws it away and dissipates it. It's truly delightful. I'm a good sleeper, and Otter's taken it to the next level with both support and cooling. Put my head down, good night, Irene. My aura ring confirms what little tossing and turning I was doing is gone. The beauty of the pillow quiz is you can get the perfect pillow that you need to and make your sleep the best sleep you can have. Go to lagoonsleep.com slash hit play and take the two minute quiz to find your perfect match and then use the code hit play all caps one word for 15% off your first purchase. Sweet dreams. So I, I don't know if this is an answerable question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If if you have a woman who's got, let's say she has, um, you know, she's always been at a heavier body weight, a higher body weight, or she has a history of like just drinking more than like would be healthy for, you know, cancer risk or like the, she has some one of those risk factors, but she also does like a lot of things that are uh, reduced risk. Is there any canceling out of, I mean, do the, or is it, does that make sense? Do you know what I'm do you know what I'm asking? Right. No, I, I hear you. It's a complicated question. I also just want to say, like, I never want any person to feel guilty that, oh, I wasn't exercising enough or I gained 10 pounds during menopause and that's why I got this breast cancer. Like, no guilt. There are so many factors that we don't even understand that contribute to an individual's risk for cancer. This is just one small piece of it. So I always tell my patients that, like, please no shame, no guilt. Let's just push that aside. But your question is a good one. So let's say, you know, a woman is overweight, but she does really get in that physical activity, you know, and she doesn't really have those other risk factors. You know, how do we interpret that? I think this is an area that we're still trying to understand and study. As you know, these studies with lifestyle and cancer risk, I mean, with cancer risk, it's also just so complicated for numerous reasons, but I think we should all you know, we're all doing our best one day at a time and, you know, trying to live our healthiest lives possible. And, but it is a really great question that would be really interesting to tease apart. So we don't know the answer. To I don't that. think is we really know I'm... the answer. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Is that's the bottom line. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's fine. And, and, the, and the other question that's sort of tangential to that is that if a woman modifies her risk factors, is the damage already done or is this like, is the, is the, are the risk factors cumulative or more acute? Acute. Does that make sense too? 
Um, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. And I can just think of one study that I discussed with my own patients in our breast cancer survivorship program just last week when we were covering the importance of physical activity for breast cancer survivors. So there was a study, the author is escaping me right now, but I can share it with you afterwards, where they looked at physical activity levels in women prior to their breast cancer diagnosis and at one year and two years later. And they did note that the women, let's just focus on the women who were not physically active prior to their diagnosis, but later adopted a physical activity routine, maybe after their diagnosis and up to two years later, those women seem to derive significant benefit in terms of helping lower their risk of breast cancer recurrence and improving their outcome by adopting this routine after their diagnosis. This was also seen in the population who were already active and kept up their activity. So I think the important message from a study like that is it's never too late to adopt these healthy lifestyle behaviors. And we should just keep doing our best, which is really an important message I convey to my patients. I haven't heard you mention um, broccoli or cruciferous vegetable. You know, oh, yeah. you know there's, a, there's a lot of, you know, you've, I've heard this because I've been in this space writing about these things for, you know, almost 30 years. I must have written about having cruciferous vegetables as a, you know, a thing that helps lower your cancer risk a thousand times. And I'm, you have not mentioned diet. No, so great curious. point. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think about the healthy body weight, I actually usually talk about the diet too. So you know, the area of what is the best diet is another, you know, (laughs) hot topic of great interest. And certainly I recommend, I go with the American Cancer Society guidelines, as well as what's outlined by organizations such as the AICR and American College of Lifestyle Medicine. So a whole food plant-based diet is absolutely a very healthy diet that is associated with a reduced risk of many chronic diseases and cancer as well. So And that kind of goes with my recommendation about achieving a healthy body weight. We know that, yes, broccoli um, and other cruciferous vegetables are so healthy as are so many other plant-based foods, protein sources such as beans, nuts, seeds, et cetera. And really limiting red meat consumption is important for breast cancer risk and for other cancers such as colon cancer. So yes, the diet piece is very important, but you know, there's been a lot of work in this area. Women should be following a low fat diet. There was a huge study looking at that through the Women's Health Initiative and actually found that it was beneficial later for women who did develop breast cancer, um, particularly an estrogen receptor negative subtype, that that diet was beneficial. But these diet studies, as you know, are very complicated, very hard. But yes, a plant predominant diet is definitely recommended and important for not only reducing risk for breast cancer, but for other chronic diseases as well. Yeah. And then thank you for the, because I was going to ask if you were meaning, if you were saying, (laughs) if you were saying plant-based is vegan or plant predominant as actually like plant-based, literally just basing your diet off of plants with um, animal sources being a a smaller portion of the diet. Definitely. Yes. I mean, we know, um, I know this is an area of great debate and controversy, but certainly I think the majority of a person's plate, I think of a plate should be fruits and vegetables. And then when you think of that protein source, I certainly encourage my patients to think about, you know, plant-based protein sources. Don't be afraid of tofu, for example, nuts, seeds, legumes, but occasional fish consumption, you know, fish has omega-3 fatty acids, which is good for cardiovascular health and, and limiting the red meat is really important. I mean, I say just limit it and certainly no processed meats whatsoever. And then when it comes to whole grains, which would be the, another you know quarter of that plate, certainly think about things like quinoa and other grains like brown rice, et cetera, that are very healthy for us because the fiber content is really important as well, certainly for breast cancer, but also whole grains have been shown to lower the risk of, you know, gastrointestinal malignancies too. Do we know the drivers here? Is it because of the estrogen? Is it because of what these, the effects on hormones? I mean, great question. I think there's so much interesting research being done in this area to help us understand at a scientific level, what is happening in our bodies when we, let's say, adopt more of a plant predominant diet. Certainly there's a lot of interest in inflammatory markers, as well as you noted, hormonal levels, estrogen levels, insulin levels, insulin-like growth factor, et cetera. So this is a whole emerging area, which is super interesting. Gut microbiome, we have to mention that too. Another fascinating area 
you know, I've read some papers recently about the gut microbiome and also how we metabolize estrogen in our bodies based on our bacteria. It's called the estrobolome. Yeah. Oh, I've written about that. Mm -hmm. So I think this is a whole emerging area that I'm really excited to learn more about. And hopefully over the next 10 years, we'll get more information about this to help guide us. Yeah, there definitely seems to be research, you know, emerging about the effect of what they're calling ultra processed foods, right? On the gut microbiome and what we might discover there that is really problematic, you know, that's having these knockoff effects. Um, I had a question that I was going to ask. Oh, sugar is what I was going to ask. I knew there was one more thing I was going to ask. If there is, you know, you had mentioned insulin. Is there an element here with um, simple sugars, added sugars that women should be aware of in this context? I'm so glad you brought up ultra processed foods. There's been more and more um, in the literature recently about the hazards of, you know, putting these things in our body. And I hope many of your listeners kind of avoid that. But certainly with with our kids, it's hard, you know, with our friends and family members, it's definitely a challenge. So, you know, these foods, what does ultra processed mean? Um, I'm just thinking, I'm going to give an example, eating corn on the cob versus a bag of corn chips. Okay. You know, they've taken little Debbie snack cakes, you know, (laughs) little Debbie snack cakes, which I will acknowledge. I did enjoy back in the day. Anyway, (laughs) um, a lot, (laughs) um, those Swiss cake rolls or whatever. Oh my God. (laughs) Yes. Let's be honest. Okay. You got to live a little, I don't eat them anymore, but so yeah, there's a lot of, you know, research now showing that these foods are unfortunately, um, harmful. And you, we mentioned maybe what is the mechanism? Yeah. Changes in our gut microbiome. Could they be responsible for increased cancer risk? You know, we're, I hate to say this, we're seeing increased risk of cancer development, not just breast cancer, by the way, but maybe let's say colon cancer in individuals under 50. This is a real a problem that I'm constantly seeing articles about trying to understand what is the mechanism for that? Is it our diet, our SAD, standard American diet responsible for this. So this is an area I think we're going to learn a lot about in the next decade. And I'm really interested in seeing what the research shows, but certainly when it comes to sugar, I know there's like this myth out there, like sugar feeds cancer, like our body, every cell in our body needs sugar glucose for its own metabolism. So you you eat an apple. Yes, it has sugar and that's good. I just, I usually counsel my patients limit the added sugars, you know, the When you pick up a can of soda, you can look at the label and see that there's whatever, 16 grams of added sugar. More than that. (laughs) Or more. (laughs) Um, But, you know, limiting the added sugars in our diet, which is an ultra processed component is really important. But the natural sugars in fruits, vegetables, grains, those, our body does need that. We need that fuel, right? For our own exercise activity, et cetera. But so there's a lot of, we have a lot of conversations about sugar. <laughs> yeah. And well, it's interesting. It's, it's something that I actually think a lot about because, you know, we have women in our audience who do entire races on gummy bears and, and cookies, right. You know, I mean, there is a lot of sugar consumption, a lot of simple sugar consumption. And is that, is that okay? Because the furnace is, you know, burning so hot and you're doing activity. And, you know, I don't, I don't know that we know the answers to that, but it's something it's always on the back of my mind. Right. I know it's really interesting, especially I know when I run marathons, I'm yeah, like, you run marathons. I still use those goo things. And you know, I've read your book with me. <laughs> Maybe I should do something else, but that's what I have been using. And it's right. Like if you look at the label on that, there's like a ton of sugar in those things too. So it's a great question. What is the best fuel source, the healthiest approach? And this is a really interesting area too, that we should look into further. So what about, um, We've mentioned, I think, have we covered all the proactives for the? Yes. Yes. I think we've done a good job with that. Family history, we can talk about that. I think that's an important one. So again, you know, it seems like an obvious thing, but believe it or not, like when I, many of the women I see in my own practice don't really have a great handle on family history. So when, when a doctor wants to know your family history, it's not just mom and dad, it's aunts, uncles, grandparents, you know, those great aunts, great uncles, et cetera. We want to know the maternal and paternal side. We want to know what was the cancer diagnosis. We want to know the age of that diagnosis. I get it. Not everyone knows that. Okay, they probably don't know. In generations, people didn't talk about it. Nope. It was like hush hush. In some cultures, they still don't talk about it. So it's hard. We also want to know a individual's ethnicity. Women of Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry have a 
increased risk of carrying a BRCA1 or 2 mutation. So we ask about that. So we're really learning more and more about the genetic components of cancer. It's a really exciting field, something I'm very interested in. Also looking at something, these like polymorphisms within genes that when taken together can also help estimate a woman's risk for breast cancer. So I think it's just an important message is know your family history. And, you know, if there are individuals, certainly more than one, my pager's going off. I'll get to that later. Anyway, <laughs> for the diagnosis of, um, you know, breast cancer, certainly under age 50, if there's ovarian cancer in the family, prostate cancer, pancreatic cancer, these are all reasons that a person should think about seeking genetic counseling. And I'm not even covering the risk for colon cancer, et cetera, but that's, those are also important. Different genes may contribute to that risk, but, you know, family history is such an important thing for women to be aware of and definitely comes into the counseling piece about when to start screening, whether to pursue genetic testing, et cetera. All, and I'm not, this is not to be like to, to in any way be a counter to what you just said. I think that's super important. I, at the same time, every time I read something, I, I read, and maybe I'm misunderstanding this, that a large percent, if not most cancers don't have, a, they don't have a family history. Maybe they don't have one they know of. Is that? Yeah, that's actually a great question. Something I should explain. So I sometimes think of breast cancers as like a pie chart. So when you think of a pie chart, um, five to 10% of the breast cancers in the United States are driven by genes that we can currently test for. So five to 10%. So that's really a small piece of the pie. And of that five to 10%, about half are explained by BRCA1 and BRCA2. The other half, a constellation of other genes that we're learning more and more about. So again, five to 10% are driven by genes we can test for. About another 10 to 15% we call familial risk. What does that mean? There may be some cancer in the family. We've done a lot of genetic testing. We can't pinpoint the gene or genes, which may be genes at this time. So, you know, those individuals may, you know, be high risk because of that family history, but just we can't find the gene. So, so that really leaves like, a significant proportion, at least like 75% that are due to genes we can't test for. So you're absolutely right. The genetic piece is important, but it's a small piece of that pie. Gotcha. Thank you for that. So let's talk about the screening elements of this. Um, what about self breast exam? You know, we would not talk about that and mammography and maybe ultrasound, you know, like I, that's the three that I think about off the top of my head. Maybe you have more. Um, sure. So First of all, again, let's just talk about self-breast exam. It's interesting. Some of the organizations that have studied this in depth have found that self-breast exam does not seem to detect breast cancer and improve survival from breast cancer, et cetera. There are studies that have shown that, but I do say, and I tell my own patients and certainly the women I see are increased risk. It is good to examine your breast once a month, at least once a month to kind of know what they feel like. What, what does your own breast tissue feel like? We all have lumps and bumps in our breasts that are unique to us. And it's good to know what that feels like. So if something does change, you can bring it to your doctor's attention. So I do still counsel my patients on the importance of self breast exams, even if the medical literature does not strongly recommend that. Okay. So I thought a lot one. of women found their own cancers though. Is that, have I read I that? Anecdotally, certainly I see that in my clinic, but the majority mm -hmm. of breast cancers, that vast majority in this country are detected by screening mammography. Okay. So, so um, certainly by anecdote, people will feel things, but it's not the most common way that breast cancer and the United States, I should say, <laughs> where we do have a screening program in place. So um, I think when it comes to mammography, I want to emphasize that that is our best screening tool for breast cancer. It's so important. Um, screening mammography has been shown to reduce the odds of dying from breast cancer and does facilitate treatments that are more manageable, meaning more manageable surgery. If one needs chemotherapy, that's more you know manageable. And then in terms of radiation therapy too, if that is needed. So I will say that um, you know we know mammography rates, unfortunately have declined certainly over the course of the pandemic, you know, there was that time in 2020 where no one could even get their mammogram. And I would say we're still playing catch up. Katie Couric and her piece does acknowledge that. Oh, I thought I got my mammogram, but because of the pandemic, I was totally off in terms of when I actually was due for it. So I think 
It's really important. We all have a bad memory for these things. Like if I ask a patient, like, when was your last colonoscopy? Like nobody really knows. Okay. We don't really remember these things. So it's really important to check on this and get your mammogram. So then an important question is what age do we start doing mammographic screening? And lots of medical experts and organizations will disagree. It's a controversial area. So I'm just going to say it's controversial and explain what the American Cancer Society recommends, because certainly this information is outlined clearly on the American Cancer Society website. So it says starting at age 40, a woman should have a conversation with her doctor about her risk factors and whether or not she wishes to engage in screening. I would even say starting before age 40, because again, that family history piece if there's a significant family history, a woman might benefit from screening actually before age 40. But certainly by age 40, she should be having that conversation with her medical team. She may or may not elect to start mammograms at 40. If there's really no risk factors, um, a woman could potentially start at age 45. So that's what the American Cancer Society guidelines state. And so certainly by age 45, a woman should be proceeding with annual mammographic screening. When we talk about mammography, you know, I will say that a study published two years ago really looked at breast cancer mortality from like 1970s and 80s until 2017. And when um, a mammography screening program was in introduced in this country, which was like the late 80s, early 90s, since that time, there's been a dramatic decrease in mortality from breast cancer, 42%. So mammography saves lives, okay? Picking up cancers when they're smaller, easier to treat, saves lives. And so that's why that's an important message. And I would encourage your listeners to look up when they last had their mammogram, and if they're due for it, to please schedule it. And mammography technology has also improved dramatically over recent years. Now we have 3D mammograms, also called tomosynthesis, which get even better pictures of the breast and are better screening tools. So you ask about other modalities that can complement um, breast cancer screening. And one technology is breast ultrasound, another is breast MRI, and then there are other technologies that are certainly being studied. I would say these are controversial too. Breast ultrasound, whole breast ultrasound is a tool used in some screening centers. I would say it's not very sensitive or specific, meaning if there is a little thing that's picked up, a lump in the breast, the likelihood of that being a cancer is actually quite low. So it's maybe in very experienced hands by individuals who do breast ultrasounds all the time. It's a good idea, but I would say it's not a widespread recommendation for women to proceed with that as a compliment. You know, for example, if they have increased breast density, it's not a done deal that everyone should have a whole breast ultrasound. Screening breast MRI is a very good tool. Um, and organizations such as the American Cancer Society do have guidelines as to which women should proceed with a screening breast MRI. It does take into account breast density, but also other risk factors such as family history, genetic factors, et cetera. And so the guideline is a, a woman's lifetime risk of breast cancer by models we talked about earlier is estimated to be 20% or greater, she may benefit from screening breast MRI. So all of these things, I think if a person's wondering, should I have augmented screening? Many centers have a high risk clinic in their breast center where, I, I know I hate that term high risk. We call ours the risk management clinic, but whatever. You can go to a clinic and meet with a provider who can review your risk factors and help counsel an individual on the best screening approach for her. What do you say, um... To the to the argument that 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 there's an over treatment of 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 lumps, maybe there there's cancers that would never grow or sometimes resolve on their own. You know, you read like some of these 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 counterpoints to annual mammography um, that are compelling, you know, even even on uh, Susan Coleman's site, they have some of these statements about mammography and the there is this slight risk of over over treating something that is not a problem. And my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that you can't or we can't at this point tell if something that you found is going to become more problematic or not. Right. Well, when it comes to an entity, I'm just going to pick one um perhaps something called ductal carcinoma in situ, which is 
Um, certainly rates of diagnosing ductal carcinoma in situ have increased since the introduction of mammographic screening, mm-hmm. about 40,000 cases a year. Ductal carcinoma in situ is, I, call, I tell my patients, it's like a stage zero breast cancer. Okay. So okay. That's a good way to put it. May or may not turn into an invasive breast cancer over time. Presently in 2022, we're trying to learn which women with DCIS are going to have invasive breast cancer, which are not. And they're, you know, are we over-treating those patients? Because the standard treatment for many years has been, and still is, I should say, surgery to remove that, and then radiation plus or minus anti-estrogen therapy, such as tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor. You could argue we may be over-treating some women with DCIS and we are trying to work on that and figure out, are there women who could be observed without treatment? And there are clinical trials ongoing to investigate that. When it comes to an invasive cancer that one picks up on a mammogram, even when it's small, I firmly believe that should be treated 100%, even if it's a one centimeter little cancer, because we know these cancers will grow over time, potentially turn into a larger tumor, potentially involve the lymph nodes. And I tell all my patients, my goal is to someday live in a world without breast cancer where all women is cured. I will find another job. Maybe I'll, <laughs> maybe I'll do something job. cool, like become a personal trainer. I'd love to do that. You know, so I'm okay with that. I would love to live in a world where we do not have women dying from breast cancer. So I'm a firm believer in mammograms. And, but I will acknowledge with DCIS, we have work to do to figure out if we are potentially over-treating some women. So I think that's perhaps what you're referring to. Yeah, I know that's a great explanation of that. Yeah. And I, the, those technicalities were eluding me at this moment. Like, it's okay. This is what I do every day. So. Yeah, no, I totally, but I appreciate that because it, it can be very confusing, you know, when you're, when you're reading, and especially when you're reading like the large bodies arguing with each other about, you know, screening and timing. And so it's, um, I appreciate all of those all those clarifications. Is there anything that we haven't covered regarding prevention uh, screening? Yeah, well, there's one really important piece that's coming to my mind, thinking about decrease in screening rates since the pandemic. Certain populations have been even more greatly affected than others. And that's where this whole era of healthcare disparities really came to the forefront during the pandemic and many different ways. But I think an important fact that I, I want your listeners to know is that Um, you know, African-American women diagnosed with breast cancer in this country have a 40% greater mortality rate compared to white women. And that's a travesty. And that is something we all as a community need to work on to address. And what does that do to? There's many factors that we're trying to understand. Fortunately, we have so many smart people working in this area, but is it due to less access to screening and therefore cancers are diagnosed at a later stage? you know, African-American women are more more likely to develop a type of breast cancer called triple negative breast cancer, which does have a more aggressive biology. So that is a piece of it. But there are so many factors here that are really important to address. And certainly I'm fortunate to work with colleagues at my hospital, Mass General, where we are doing a lot of work to reach out to our community sites and ensure that we're making screening accessible to all. So that's an area that we really do need to work on. Absolutely. And and thank you for calling our attention to that because um, healthcare inequities are are pretty pronounced in this in this country, and understanding, you know, the reason like we have a long way to go with 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 those elements too. So thank you for that. Musculoskeletal health is everything during menopause. Everyone knows how much I love Joint Health Plus from Prevenex, which has helped me get back to distance running after arthritic toes stopped me in my tracks. Now they have a product that has become my go-to for muscle strength and recovery, Muscle Health Plus. Muscle Health Plus contains all the key ingredients we talk about on this show, like creatine monohydrate, essential amino acids, and branched-chain amino acids, plus even more cutting-edge ingredients like HMB and estrogen that are scientifically shown to increase muscle growth, recovery, and strength. I use it every day during my early morning lifting sessions, and there's no question that it helps my power during those workouts and my recovery after. Plus, I love having everything I need from the best high-quality ingredients in one reasonably priced shake. I've also heard from fellow users who have had bloating or GI upset in the past from creatine that haven't had any of that with Muscle Health Plus. I make my shake with almond milk and espresso, but it's also good with ice-cold water, which makes the flavor really pop. 
As always, you can get 15% off your first order with the code HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. That's HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. Do your muscles a favor and head on over and get some today. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested, and designed for men. Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are stoked to be working with Hedda's. Hedda's designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedda's has unlocked the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research and creates better shoes for women's performance. Some of Hedda's special features include a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing on women's ankle bones, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and accommodate female toe shape, a more narrow and reductive heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take pressure off the Achilles, a rounded instep that creates a snug fit through the middle to match the curvature of a woman's foot, and supercritical foam and a PBEX plate in the midsole to keep our legs going when the going gets tough. Hedda's has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for your long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've been running in the Alma Tempos, and they are a pleasure to train in. You can get your own pair of Hedda's at Hedda's.com and use the code FEISTY20, that's all caps, FEISTY20, for 20% off. Check it out today. We'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. If a woman is diagnosed with um, breast cancer, you know, her world kind of stops and she stops hearing things. But what what should what resources would you advise her to sort of seek out? Great question. Um, And Katie Couric, again, shouting out to her. She stated that and her piece, like the world stopped, my heart stopped. Like, well, she has such a history with, I mean, I didn't, I mean, I, I knew know. her husband, but when she was talking about the rest of her family, I was like, oh, okay. Like, you know, I, that's rough. So that really hit her heart. And I think pretty much any woman can tell you that when you hear those words, you have cancer. That's so scary. And so one of my number one recommendations, you know, many of us are very strong. We're used to taking care of everybody else. We got this. Nothing can stop us. It is okay to ask for help and to lean on friends and family for support. It is okay. If someone's offering to bring you dinner or have your kids over for a play date or whatever. It's okay to get help. And I think that support piece is so key. And I really encourage my patients to take advantage of that. I also think knowledge is power. Obviously, that's why you have this podcast. It, education is so important. So I certainly encourage individuals to seek out evidence-based sources of information. Um and actually, one of my colleagues just came out with a book called Living with Breast Cancer it's by Dr. Jennifer Shin, along with my colleagues, Dr. Vicki Jackson and Dave Bryant. So it literally just came out last week. So that's a great evidence-based source of information about breast cancer, because I can tell you, as you know, there's a lot of misinformation on the internet. So we have to be very careful. <laughs> yes. Don't go to the Dr. Google. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. This is definitely not a time. Totally. It's but really never a time. <laughs> So people do it. So it's obviously important to look for evidence-based sources of information and let your healthcare team take care of you. Find a team that you feel comfortable with where you can ask your doctor questions, the breast surgeon, the oncologist, you know, the radiation oncologist, genetic counselor, social worker, psychologist, you know, where I'm fortunate to work in a place where we provide multidisciplinary care in one setting. The patient sees all of us at once. And we're a great team where we really do our best to, you know, discuss each patient's case and provide um, top top care. But I think I know, you know, I'm fortunate to work in an institution like that. But I think it's really important for a patient to find a set of doctors that she feels very comfortable with. So that's also a really important piece. So the support piece, the education piece and finding your team. Those are three good pieces of advice right there. How do you find your team? I know, I know. So, (laughs) um, well, I know I'm blessed to be in Boston, but I know, you know, all over the country, there's going to be, there's lots of great cancer centers. um, And certainly, you know, I think those are always great places to go. But again, sometimes, I mean, unfortunately, breast cancer is really common. So I think getting recommendations from your primary care doctor, gynecologist, 
family members, friends for a doctor that they've seen that they love, that can really be helpful too. But yeah, I can imagine in some places it is hard. So um, getting those recommendations is really important. Excellent. Thank you. And in your in your experience, um, you, you must treat active women. Like, are they able to continue to be active? Um, yes, yeah, so this is something I love to talk about. There's actually an emerging field, which is super exciting, called exercise oncology. Mm, I like that. I know you would. So, um, so there's definitely so much research being done now on the benefits of being active each step of the way, from the time of diagnosis, during treatment, and beyond. And one of the leaders in this field is Dr. Um, Catherine Schmitz. She's done a lot of work. There's on a lot of her work is on the American College of Sports Medicine website. There's a Moving Through Cancer initiative with great resources there. And lots of studies have shown that women, let's say a woman needs chemotherapy. Not everybody needs chemo, but let's say an individual does need chemo after her breast cancer diagnosis. If she's able to remain active during that time, she's able to tolerate the treatment better, fewer side effects, less of need for dose reduction, et cetera. So being active from the time of diagnosis during treatment and beyond is beneficial. I will acknowledge, I counsel my patients, this is maybe not the time to like ramp up your exercise routine. You know, this is maybe the time to be in more in a maintenance phase, be consistent, getting in those 150 minutes a week. But even if it's a walk and you're someone who used to run, like just being active though is so um, key for overall health. And so we definitely spend a lot of time counseling our patients about this. Excellent. Thank you for that. Um, couple other just just general questions. Um, we have some active women in our audience who have inquired about breast reduction surgery because they find that their larger breasts are painful, especially during exercise. Um, what do you know about breast reduction surgery? Is that like is it is that a reasonable option or is the risk is it too risky? I think I told you, I bumped into one of my plastic surgery colleagues yesterday and we were chatting and she did say breast reduction surgeries are one of her favorite surgeries to perform <laughs> because she makes people feel so much better. So many women who are large breasted may be at back pain, neck pain, feel uncomfortable, as you noted, maybe during exercise. And she said doing a breast reduction makes people feel better. So that's a really rewarding aspect of her job. And, you know, since you are removing breast tissue, she she did review with me and it makes sense that th those, those types of operations also are associated with a um, reduction in risk of breast cancer kind of makes sense. So, so she, we definitely think they're safe. Some of our patients after breast cancer diagnosis may opt to do that as well, you know, when they're having their other surgery. So it's definitely safe and certainly covered by insurance. So it's definitely something worth exploring. Yeah, it's, I, I only, I have to, I, I used to train this woman who was very largely endowed. I mean, and, but it was, it, it was a source of discomfort for her forever. She must've been, she had to have been in her sixties at that point. And she finally, she's like, I'm just going to do it. And she, she got them very reduced. And I'll just, I'll never forget. She was so proud of them. She like, when I came back to see her finally, she like lifted her shirt to show me. Like, look how beautiful they are. And I was like, I'm very happy for you. Yeah, you our <laughs> colleagues, there's so many advances. They can make these incisions barely noticeable yeah. and people are happy. That's but why her life had just totally, I mean, it really did change. Yeah. That's why my colleague was like, I love those operations. It's one of my favorites. I'm like, yeah. great. <laughs> and then, and then finally on the flip side of that, you know, and I, I know that this is not an area that has great research around it, but we, it's come up in our membership on our, our community a little bit about uh, women who've had breast implants and the, God, there's been so much mythology and urban legend around those too. Like, do they cause cancer? Is it a problem? Do they, um, do they cause breast implant illness? Which I know is something that's sort of percolating in some of the literature now. Do we know anything about breast implants at this point? Like, should they be saline? Should they be something else? Are they safe? Right. Right. So I know um, this breast implant illness entity that you just noted, that's an area that certainly um, has been, you know, we see this more in the press or on social media. And there's, you know, my breast surgery colleagues, my plastic surgery colleagues, I should say, tell me there's really very limited science on this in terms of understanding the biology and 
mechanisms of this. So I think this is an area of controversy that's still being studied. In general, my colleagues will definitely counsel patients who are exploring breast implants about the risk and benefit. You know, it is obviously a foreign entity you're putting in your body, but often they can be in place for up to 15 years and don't necessarily need to come out. Um, there's certainly been a lot of research on the safety of which type of breast implant to put in, and that field has come along a long way. So certainly our plastic surgery colleagues definitely have a conversation about patients about the with patients about the risks and benefit, and they overall are felt to be safe. But certainly these other entities you note, first of all, cancers related to implants are exceedingly rare, very uncommon with the current modern implants that they use. So Certainly, this is an area that the plastic surgery community is obviously studying carefully as well. Excellent. Well, Amy, this has been really wonderful and insightful, and I appreciate all your wisdom and you bringing it to our audience. Is there anything that you would like to leave us with for this Breast Cancer Awareness Month episode? Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me. I love your podcast, so it's been a great opportunity to chat with you. I have one, you know, I'm a runner. So I have this running calendar that I flip through each day with like little inspiring messages. And I have one of them taped to my computer because I really like it. And I think this is a good message for Breast Cancer Awareness Month. You are a limited edition. Take care of yourself. So I'd like to leave your listeners with that. Oh, I love that. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's our show. Come on back next week when I sit down with Heidi Skolnick of Nutrition Conditioning. Heidi specializes in treating the female athlete triad, also known as relative energy deficiency in sports, which is a serious condition that many active females face and is one that women may be particularly susceptible to in the menopause transition. So come on back for that one. And until then, as always, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause, and please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends, And please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty. Stay feisty.